worship. Um, this next song that we're gonna sing talks about how God has overcome everything. It talks about how Jesus makes the darkness tremble. And I think that's a statement that if we've been in the church for a really long time, we kind of lose the weight of that statement. And I also think sometimes we can try and limit that when we like apply it to our earthly circumstances. When we say like, Jesus has overcome this specific thing, which he has, he's greater than every single thing we could ever walk through here. But the verse that popped in my head as we were singing this song this morning is the verse from Revelation that talks about when we see Jesus face to face, that he will wipe away every tear from our eye and there will be no more mourning or sickness or crying or pain. And I think that's the greater truth to remember, right? That God's not just overcome the things of this earth, he's overcome death itself and we get to be alive with him forever and eternity. So let's remember that as we sing this morning. Darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. 
That song says, you have no rival and you have no equal. Do you really believe that about our God? So a song like that pulls us in. It honors him. It, it, it energizes us to worship more. And that's exactly what we're trying to do with the I Am They concert coming up here in three weeks. So watch this video of I Am They. There it is. So July 17th, 7 o'clock. Tickets are online. If I'm not mistaken, $20 for an adult, $15 for a student. Is that right, Daryl? Excellent. So let's, let's pack this building out like we just did now and worship the Lord and do that on the 17th also. So a couple more announcements. Um, so Elena's Bible study for young ladies, teenagers. We need you to sign up. This week is the last week you can sign up. We, we really want to solidify the group that's going to be committed to that. So let Elena know um, at, at her email address, elena at cornerstonecommunity.net. 
We also are going to restart MOPS in the fall. Do you guys know what MOPS is? MOPS, Mothers of Preschoolers. Mothers, mothers of Preschoolers, yes. So it's a phenomenal ministry for anyone who has small children that Jessica ran it a couple years ago, and we're going to start it up again. So she's having an informational meeting here, you can see. And this is not just for, this is for mothers of preschoolers, but not just who attend this church. This is an incredible ministry for people who are out there, ladies out there that just need some fellowship. Maybe they don't even know Jesus. Opportunity to introduce Jesus to them. It's, it's, not, it's not high-handed. It's an incredible ministry. So if you know somebody, inform them about this and talk to Jessica. Mothers of preschoolers. Soccer camp is coming up. Today there's sign-ups. Jessica will be in the lobby with a computer to sign up your kids for soccer camp. And we need to get this on the books. We didn't know how many kids are coming. There are scholarships available. Last week I encouraged you and said we needed 10 scholarships today, a week ago. You actually gave 20. So, you know, you, um, you really need to stop exceeding what I ask of you. Um, which is wonderful, because the majority of kids who come to this soccer camp don't come to this church, and a lot of them's families can't afford this. So thank you so much. She still needs host homes, though. So if you, that was on your mind to be a host home, let her know, but she'll be in the lobby with sign-up for you to sign your kids up. Okay. Tonight, I don't know what time, after dark, we have about 45 middle schoolers getting on buses and going to Lost Canyon Camp in northern Arizona. A 14-hour bus ride. And we have five or six or more adult volunteers who are going to take them there. So have you ever been on a bus with 45 middle schoolers? Would you appreciate prayer? So Gabe and your team, come on up. Gabe and all the leaders going to this, this thing camp, come on up. So we just want to pray for you guys, and, and there's a couple more that aren't here, um, because they're going to camp for a week, they bailed on church, is that it? Everybody just kidding, not. just kidding, sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. So Gabe, how many kids are going? I said 40, 52. There's 54 of us. 54, yeah. So, and you'll be gone for how many days? Seven. Seven days. Then they get back for a few days, and then take that many high schoolers to camp. Yeah, so th this is an incredible group of people who are committed to our kids. So I just want to pray for them. Father, we thank you for these four people and more. We know Lord Will and others who are, and, and Stacy, who are um, stepping up to disciple our youth. God, be with them and bring them great encouragement. Give them energy. Fill them with your spirit to say the right things at the right time. Soften these kids' hearts if they know Jesus, to grow in Jesus. If they don't know Jesus, open their eyes to the beauty of your son and their great, great need for a Savior. So, Lord, thank you for this Young Life Camp, and thank you for these people who commit their vacation time to minister to our kids. We love you. In Christ's name, I ask for a blessing on these people. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. So thank you guys very much. Mm -hmm. A Subaru Forester alarm going off. So if someone, if that's your car, go check it out.
So we are reinstituting our greeting time. Before you stand up and greet one another, understand also after services, we're trying to get you to hang around outside where there's going to be coffee and refreshments. So a year and a half of COVID as we've separated from each other, let's um, wisely and, and with wisdom re-engage this time of greeting and fellowship. So if you don't know someone sitting around you, introduce yourself. If there's someone new, seek them out and say hello. And um, it's wonderful to have you. So go ahead and... Sir, see, I can't talk. I can't talk. Let's go ahead and get a seat. Why don't we, um, let's take a seat now, but let's carry this on after services outside. I love to hear that talk. So, so let's carry this on after services outside. And um, we're going to get started on Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Father, ask that you guide us now in your word. And um, show us, Father, from this passage, Lord, the things you've equipped us to do and what you've called us to do. So we look forward to how you're going to work in our lives today because of this passage. In Christ's name, amen. So my brother, who's five years older than me, I'll actually see him in August at a family reunion. I haven't seen him in 10 years. When he was um, about ninth or 10th grade, he, um, and I'm not gossiping, he, he, if he was here, I'd say this. So, but he dropped out of high school and said, adios. And guess what he became? A deadhead. <laughs> Matthew's going thumbs up. Do you know what a deadhead is? How many of you know what deadheads are? See, it's all you old people. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, a deadhead is someone who is deeply devoted, radically committed to the Grateful Dead. And he would hitchhike around the country to go to their concerts. Um, if you went over to a certain elder's house in this house, I won't say his name, but his initials are Matthew Campbell, you, you, would, see, you would see pictures of Jerry Garcia on his wall. Matthew is not much different than my brother. <laughs> but he didn't, he didn't drop out of high school. Yeah. So, um, radical commitment. That's what we're going to look at today from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 18 or 17. 
And I want us to ask ourselves, when it comes to following Christ, are we partially committed, mostly committed, or totally committed to the point where someone might say, that guy is a Jesus freak. That lady is a Jesus freak. Now, I understand sometimes that terminology is insulting to us. and We don't want to be known as that. I've heard people say to me, though, you know, I, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to be overly committed and be known as a Jesus freak. So today, let's make Jesus freak a positive thing, not a negative thing, and ask ourselves the question, is my commitment to Christ radically total? I like the word radical. We don't use it much. Um, so we're going to walk through... Chapter 12, 9 to 21, has 20 commands to us of how we are to live our life. Paul just goes rapid fire like a machine gun. We can't cover them all in depth. We're only going to do, actually, we're not going to do the very last couple today. We'll do them later. But let's see if we can get through some of them. This is going to be rapid fire. And I want you to ask, which one or two of these do I need to say, yeah, I've been half committed on that. I need to up my walk with Jesus in this area. Because as I just prayed... He's equipped you and made you new to live this life. This isn't a burden. This is something we step into as who we are and our purpose. So I've, I've divided them up into about four or five different categories and titled them. Um, so, so then we'll walk through them. The first one I call unhypocritical love. Unhypocritical love. Listen to Romans 12, 9 to 12. Excuse me, 9 to 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So, so yeah, the ushers are walking around with Bibles. If you'd like a Bible, raise your hand, they'll bring you one. I titled this Unhypocritical Love because in the very first line it says, love, let love be genuine. And the word genuine there is where we get our word unhypocritical. Literally, our word unhypocritical is simply a transliteration into English, taking the Greek letters, making them English letters. And so a good translation would say, let love be unhypocritical, which begs the question, what is hypocritical love? If I'm to have my love be unhypocritical, genuine, sincere in some translations, to define what that is, let's ask, what is hypocritical love? And your mind may be going there, and some examples, I would suggest to you that... A hypocritical love is a conditional love. Hypocritical because I'm expecting an unhypocritical love from God and hopefully from you. But if I don't extend it back, conditional love, if I extend conditional love, I'll love you if you do X, Y, and Z, that's hypocritical. Hypocritical love is a halfway love. So when it says he starts his whole section off, Love unhypocritically, love sincerely, love genuinely. Later in chapter 13, this is what he says about love. Chapter 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Drop down to verse 10. Love does, not, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You look at the Ten Commandments, especially Commandments 5 through 10, is all about interpersonal relationships. You know, you love your mother and you honor your mother and father. You don't commit murder. You don't commit adultery. You don't steal. You don't lie. You don't covet. All that, what Paul is saying here, is if you actually love your neighbor, you won't do those things. Those aren't commands that are burdensome. That, that describes 
godly relationships. So if I'm deeply committed to you, radically committed to you in love, I won't sin against you. Love fulfills the law. Then it goes on. It says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. The ESV actually says, um, um, yeah, abhor what is evil. So the word abhor there is a strong word. The word abhor what is evil and cling to what is good, hold fast to what is good. Two very strong adjectival phrases on evil and good. To abhor something is the step above hatred. It is to utterly detest evil. To cling to good, the word cling to there is a word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians about sexual intimacy among a man and a woman. So get the imagery there of sexual intimacy and clinging to each other. Paul is using that intense word to say cling to what is good and detest what is evil. But those are, those are opposite categories. But the question becomes... Are we halfway on these things? And, and, and confession, I am often. Because you know, we, we Christians are, be, are known for what we are opposed to. And, and I know this is controversial, but we've got to talk about it. We're known, as a general rule, Christians, I can't, I can't paint you all with the same brush, but we're known for standing against sexual immorality of all kinds. Well, no, actually, we're known for sexual immorality of some kinds. But yet, so we may, we may be against homosexuality, but yet we tolerate people in this church living together outside of marriage. Both of them before God are contrary to his purposes. It's not how he designed us. We need to abhor evil, whatever form it is, and cling to what is good. And clinging to what is good, when we do that halfway, it usually comes with self-righteousness. So a radical commitment is to look at what God says is evil and abhor it and look at what God says is good and cling to it and love it. But I know what's going through your mind now, some of you. How we do that in front of an unbelieving world. We need to do it without a mean spirit. And this, this is... Our, you guys know this well. Our world is in such a turmoil now as competing worldviews, we can't even talk to each other anymore about our differences. Because as soon as you open your mouth about your convictions, you're, you are a hater. You are a racist. You are fill in the blank. And so how do we respond? I fear we're responding in like and becoming equally mean-spirited. Um... I'm not sure exactly how to say it. New Jersey's a school board. I pronounce it Loudon. I'm not sure it's the right way. They've been having a ton of public meetings that are becoming more and more verbal and mean-spirited. And one lady stood up to defend her transgendered child. And here's what she said. She said, hate is dripping from the followers of Jesus in this room. Now, I, I, didn't, I didn't see the video or anything. I don't know what she's describing as hate. Sometimes we can be called haters simply because we say that's wrong. Then by definition, you're a hater. You're a, you know? But sometimes Christians are mean-spirited. They get loud and they get insulting. And, and we're going to see in a minute where Jesus says, bless those who persecute you. Not call them names, not yell at them. Bless them. So we've got to figure out how we abhor what is evil and cling to what is good with an attitude of Christ-likeness 
that cares about the people. So we abhor what is evil, not the people who have committed themselves to those evil. Because what is our goal in the lives of the people who are committed themselves to evil? Is it to condemn them? Is it to hope they go to hell someday and burn forever? What's the goal? To see them come to faith in Jesus, to live such a life that they understand their sin has separated them from God, but the love of God has sent his son to redeem them from that. And there's deliverance from those things. So that's what we have to figure out as we abhor what is evil and cling to what is good, a radical commitment to those things. But as we're going to go on here, in a manner that people say, I, I disagree with Tony vehemently, but I can't argue with his heart and love for me. We must learn to abhor evil without being mean-spirited, and we must learn to cling to what is good without a sense of self-righteousness. So verse 10, he says here, he uses a different word for love here. Verse 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. So here, when he says let love be unhypocritical, it's the Greek word agape. It's a common word for love in the New Testament, the most common word. It's It's a word to describe God's love for the world and God's love for his enemies. God loves them, the word agape. Here he uses a, a couple different forms of the word phileo or phylos. It's a noun in the verb, which is brotherly love. So you guys know the city of Philadelphia. What's it called? The city of brotherly love. Because the word Philadelphia is the word used here. It means brotherly love. And so that this is a word, phylos is a word that describes a family love. So this word is never used in the New Testament to describe loving your enemy. It's used to describe loving your family. It's an intense family love. And so some people say, what's well, lesser love? It's not lesser love. It's a very focused love. And it's talking about the family of God. So here's what one commentator, Tom Schreiner, that, that I read in his commentary on Romans he, he, he would translate this verse as, have tender family affection for one another and brotherly and sisterly love. So he takes brother love, makes it brotherly and sisterly, which is proper. It's not just saying you men do this, but we as followers of Jesus are to commit this Philadelphia. A tender family affection. He goes on to say, Paul conceives of the church as a family that is even closer than one's biological family for all united to Christ as brothers and sisters. Thus, warm affection should course among the members of the body. And the idea of coursing there, it's a great word. The idea of warm affection should course through our veins for one another. It it should permeate who we are to have this love and affection for each other that has deep concern. Are we committed to that? Are we selective on who we will have that kind of love for? I, I, I know I am. All of these things, I'm not, this isn't, oh, self-deprecating pastor. I have so much area to grow in these areas. I, I have a whole, I have endless area to grow. But it doesn't soften what God is calling us to. And if we failed in these things, okay, then we say, God, I've blown it, but I'm getting up. And because of your power and your spirit in me, because of the new heart you've given me, I'm chasing these things down. I'm running after him. Outdo one another in showing honor. Second half of that verse. 
I believe this mirrors Paul's statement in Philippians 2, 3 through 4, where Paul says, Consider others as more important than yourself. Outdo one another in showing honor. And this, again, this, this, is, this is a filter that says, my, my being recognized as a good guy, as a good pastor, whatever I want to be recognized as, must take a back seat to me highlighting your honorableness so that I'm not seen, but you are. That's what it says there. When Paul says in Philippians, regard others as more important than yourself, that goes against our sinful nature. It certainly goes against American self, um, what's the word? Self-esteem thinking. Um, this is not about saying I'm, I'm a loser, I'm a nobody. This is about saying I'm a child of God made in his image and, and the spirit of God lives in me and my goal is to make sure people see you, not me. That's what it means to outdo one another in honor. What would happen if we actively sought to make sure others were recognized and honored for their faithfulness even at the expense of people not seeing what we have done? What would that change in our church, in our community? So there's just two verses. We've got a lot more to go here. The next heading I've called On Fire for the Lord, verses 11 and 12. Do, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So he, 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 he contrasts two things. Slothful in spirit. Don't be that, but be Fervent in spirit. I'll come back to those. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. So, opposite, slothful in spirit, fervent, slothful in zeal, fervent in spirit. The word slothful means lazy. I, you know, the word, because if you know what a sloth is, it's a, it's a great visual image. And they get a bad rap called lazy. Whatever reason, God made them very slow. So when we stop, stop being a sloth, I'm not sure they're very impressed with our insult, but we get the picture. So it's a lazy person. So slothful in zeal. It's interesting. What did Paul say that Jesus saved us for in Titus 2.13, 2.14? Jesus saved the people for his own possession who would be zealous for good works. So the word zeal here is this idea of what should flow for me is a zeal to serve you. What should flow out of you is a zeal to serve others. Let's not be slothful in that. But the adverse is fervent in spirit. The word fervent means to boil. That's why I titled this section, On Fire for the Lord. As it goes on there, in verse 12, don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. It's interesting, in all these commands, what's given to us is commands how we relate to each other. But in the middle of this one is serve the Lord. So how do you serve the Lord? Don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit as you pursue each other. And so this is back to the Jesus freak thing. Could we be described as people who are on fire to honor God and serve one another? Not just willing, capable, one day a week, one day a month, but I'm described as a person that's on fire for the things of the Lord. And, and again, I don't want to make this unachievable. 
Paul has not given us something here that is so far above our abilities that we say, ah, I can't do that. Paul has already set up Romans 1 through 8 to establish you are made new. You are a new creation in Christ. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You are born again. You've been raised from the dead with Christ. This is the life that should flow from us. Not, it's not a burden. It should bring us great joy. Have we bought into some of, drank some of the Kool-Aid on half-committed is enough for the Lord? Let me read a hard statement by Jesus on being half-committed. comes out of Revelation. He uses the word lukewarm. Revelation 3.15, he's talking to the church of Laodicea, who he didn't have much good to say about it. And before I read this, this, I wasn't planning on doing this, I think a good exercise would be to read through the seven letters of Revelation 2 and 3 and ask yourself, after reading them, what would Jesus say to us if he showed up here? The letter to incline. Here's what he says to Laodicea. I know your works. Interesting, he's not saying, I know what you claim to believe. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This comes from a, in Laodicea, there's a, a river that flows out of some hot springs up in the hills. But by the time it gets to Laodicea, it's lukewarm. And it's like drinking lukewarm water or lukewarm Coke or lukewarm beer. What do you do with it? Yeah. So, so that's the imagery here that the readers understand. Christ has designed us for fervency, for zeal. And to step into it is to be an instrument in his hand. We talked last week about how he's gifted you. He's enabled you to be an instrument in his hand. So there's concrete things. You've been given gifts, last week's message. Now with that needs to be the attitude of fervent in spirit, committed to these things. Verse 12 reminds us what we're to do in our discouragement. You see, it's easy to focus on our problems and say, oh, poor me, poor me. I can't be those things because I have my issues. Let me reread to you verse 12. After he says those two things about fervency, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope. What is hope in the book of Romans? What are we hoping for? We talked about it in chapter 8. We're hoping for the second coming of Jesus. We're waiting for that day that he comes and, and raises us from the dead and I get my new bodies. The redemption of our body, he says. That's our hope. This world is filled with pain. Filled with struggles. And, and, and this body is dying. And I'm waiting for that day. I'm hoping. I'm rejoicing in the day Christ returns. And if I'm still alive or if I'm dead in the ground, he raises us up with glorified bodies just like his own. That's what we rejoice in, that hope. In light of that, be patient in tribulation. Tribulation here specifically, this, this word is mostly used for, for persecution. Be patient in tribulation. Patience implies an end to something. That God's gonna, God is going to deal with that. Be patient in that tribulation. And above it all, be constant in prayer. It should drive us to talk to Jesus all the time about how amazing he is, who I am in light of him, 
in the hurts of my heart and my body, constant in prayer. A radical commitment to the Lord means hope, patience, and prayer are constant companions, both individually and corporately. I know some of you have incredible prayer lives, and you're a blessing to me. You're a blessing to me. It's, it's um, the fervency in prayer for me is like this. And I've been analyzing my prayers of the last year or so, how much I ask for relief from struggles as opposed to God being glorified and then my heart being changed to be like Jesus. I'll talk more about that later. So the next one, rapid fire, generosity inside and out. By inside out, I mean inside the body of Christ, outside the body of Christ. Inside the community of Cornerstone Church, outside to Incline Village or the world. So let me read verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I would suggest here that contribute to the needs of the saints is inside. To show hospitality. The word hospitality is two Greek words. Love of strangers. So in, in Israel, Paul's, Paul's cultural background, they were to leave the corners of their fields unharvested. Why? So when the stranger walked through their land, they could glean food and eat them because you showed hospitality to them. And, and so the imagery here of hospitality is when a stranger comes around, has a need, we'll meet it. But first contribute to the needs of the saint. Again, I think this is an example of clinging to what is good. Are we radically committed, there's a title of my sermon, are we radically committed to one another so that generosity, even sacrificial giving, is my first response to you? Paul commends the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. You see, the, the, the Philippians, the, or rather the church in Jerusalem, there was a famine that came to them. And so the church in Jerusalem didn't have food to eat. So Paul, in his missionary journeys in Europe, is taking a collection to send back to the needy Christians in Jerusalem. And the Philippians, Paul said. So Paul in 2 Corinthians, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to join in this contribution. What he says is, and your neighbors to the north, the Macedonians, specifically the city of Philippi, the county of Macedonia, as we look at it today, he said they gave out of their need. They, gave, they did without so the poor people in Jerusalem could have something to eat. I'll forego what I need so you can have what you need. That, to me, is radical generosity. And then, seek to show hospitality. That word seek is very important. Look in your Bibles. Is there other translations besides seek? That's the ESV translation. Strive, it says. Practice. Another translation was strive. It is actually a Greek word called dioko. And I'm, I'm mentioning the Greek a lot today because these words are so terse. I, I, I'm not trying to show off. I'm, I'm trying to show you some intensity in these words. The Greek word is dioko. It has a positive and negative connotation. And it's a word that describes a, a strong drive to accomplish something. The negative connotation is to persecute somebody. So the positive connotation could be pursue, strive for, go after, hunt down. 
So if we take that negative connotation, the intensity of persecuting somebody, and make it positive about hospitality, that changes, well, oh gosh, I guess I'll help because they did knock on my door, to I'm going to hunt them down. I heard there was a stranger in town needed help. I'm going to hunt them down. That's foreign to me. I'll be honest with you. Sometimes, sometimes I'll see someone come to the parking lot. My office looks out to the parking lot. And they're coming to the door. I'm going, oh, great, they want something. Here, here's what I say. I'm not lying. This isn't funny. I hope Matthew answers the door. It happened the other day. Matthew answered the door and met the person's need. Um, but I, I had to check myself. God, why was I bothered? What is it about me that someone who has a basic need and I'm able to meet it, I don't want to deal with it? A lot of room to grow about going after hospitality. So the next heading, blessing, rejoicing, and weeping. So there's those three verbs are mentioned here, blessing, rejoicing, and weeping. Let me read 14 and 15 to you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That's a tall order. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Did I do both verses? Yes, I did. So, first of all, bless those who persecute you. Paul first uses in the previous verse, pursue, hunt after the, 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 the stranger. That's the word dioko, that is now used in a negative. Bless those who hunt after you. So it's like Paul had a word in his mind about a tense word of how to treat strangers, and then he brings up the negative side of that word. And when someone comes after you, hunts after you, seeks after you to hurt you, what do you do? You get your gun out and you defend yourself. I'm not a pacifist. But that's not what it says. It says bless them. I'm also all for protecting your family, so don't, don't, don't overread into my words. But I wonder sometimes if from first run to, how do I defend myself as opposed to how do I bless my enemy? Um, that's for you to think through. I could be overstating it. So you have the spirit in you. you. You talk to him about the first response to those who are against you. Jesus says this, but I say to you who are listening. I, I love that in Luke. He often says, I say to you. But Luke adds, to you who are listening. Um, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Only a spirit-filled person could do that. That is not natural. Um, and it's like I see no value in that, God. But I bet there's tons of testimony over history of the persecutor who became the follower because the person they were persecuting treated them kindly. The last one, radical commitment to harmony and peace. Let me read verse 16 to 18. If possible, let's see, that's 18, go back to 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably 
with all. A lot there. So live in harmony and don't get haughty. I would suggest to you that a destroyer of harmony in the church is haughtiness and arrogance. It'll destroy harmony every time. Why? Because to be haughty is to presume I'm better than you. And if I'm better than you, I, I have no desire for harmony. Functionally, I don't even need you. So the idea of having a proper view of yourself, don't think too highly of yourself because every good thing in your life, according to James chapter 1, every good thing in your life comes from whom? God. And so this is very important for us successful people. You know, when we say, well, I did it. Well, this is what I like to say to successful people, which we all are in this room, is, is you know, there's people in this world that it work way harder than any of us and hardly eat one meal a day. So your hard work, which I'm sure you're a hard worker that brought about your success, was blessed by God. So remember from whom the blessing comes. And let's not get arrogant, but live in harmony with one another. Associate with the lowly. So who are the lowly in Incline Village? And if this is this is where you have to check your own spirit. Who do you see as lowly? Who would, comes outside your window and need help and you go, oh, I hope Matthew answers the door? Because that's the attitude of I don't want to associate with a neat person in need. That will require something from me. The last one, it started with love. Love unhypocritically. But it ends with peace, this section. Paul says in verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I remember my first couple months on staff back in the fall of 17. I had, I I don't want to exaggerate, two or three individuals and couples come to my office about a conflict they were having with someone else in the church. And... And I read this verse to him, and I gave him my, my true belief that reconciliation must be sought among the people of God. We don't get to say, I won't reconcile. And these three people, if it was that many, looked at me and said, I will not reconcile with that person, a Christian. And I said, that's not an option. Jesus didn't die to reconcile you to the Father for you and I to say, I won't reconcile with a brother and sister. It is not an option. So are you, everyone has conflicts. In your conflict with other Christians, have you done everything possible to be at peace? Peace implies reconciliation at some level. I think they're very close. I don't want to separate them. It's the heart of who we are. Love and peace, bracket these two. Do you guys know who Francis Chan is? I found this quote. I forgot to read it earlier. It actually fits better now. Talking about how churches divide. 
In the church, we divide easily because we love shallowly. In the church, we divide easily because we love shallowly. If this section starts with love, let love be genuine, let love be unhypocritical, and closes, do whatever is in your power to be at peace with your brother or sister. Everything else is bracketed between that love and peace in this passage. And it should be characteristic of who we are. Okay, i got to get back down to my... I think it's a good place to stop for now. We'll go into the seeking revenge another Sunday. Or not seeking revenge. It's the rest, it's the rest, of, the, it's the rest of the paragraph. Um, sorry. Um, I, I want to, and I know this is going to go long, so please bear with me. Uh, I want to share some things um, that Teresa and I are going through. I want your prayer. And I want, I want to put the caveat up front, not the caveat, our deep conviction that Galatians 4.19 and Colossians 1.28 in, in that area drives my ministry here, this church's ministry, and it drives our personal life. And Galatians 4.19 says, Paul says, I'm in labor again till Christ is formed in you. And what I want... Most days, what I want more than anything else is to be like Jesus. We talk about it. We pray about it together. Then you go to passages like 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, James chapter 1, Romans 5, Romans 8. Um, all describe God uses hard times in your life. God, use, God uses pain to make you like Jesus. It's an instrument of his to bring maturity to you. So the reason I say all that is, is to, to tell you this. Um, about two and a half weeks ago, I had a prostate biopsy, and I've been diagnosed with moderately aggressive prostate cancer. And surgery is Tuesday morning. Um, I told the doctor that I've, I had two doctors. I got a second opinion. I had my doctor. Greg Schaefer, who's just gone through this very thing in the last few weeks, I called him. He said, go get a second opinion from my doctor. I went. Both doctors say, at our age, Greg and I's age, but my age, you need to remove it, not do radiation. So two doctors, I said, I got plans this summer. Let's get it done now. And so a couple days later, his scheduler says, okay, Tuesday. Well, I didn't mean that quick. Um, actually, I'm rejoicing in that. I'm rejoicing in, in um, and, and this is, folks, and I, I'm not trying to be super spiritual or anything else. Teresa and I have great peace of what God's trying to do. The num based on the numbers, the doctor presumes, based on the numbers, if you guys know what the Gleason score and all that is, if you've ever done this, um, that the cancer highly likely has not left the prostate. But they won't know until there's some biopsies done, which will happen sometime next week. And so my prayer is that when the prostate is removed, the cancer is gone. It has not left the prostate into the, the bladder or the lymph nodes or anywhere else. And we move forward in life. But I mean this with all my heart. 
I, I, you know, if God wants to touch me and say you're healed, wow. But what I want more than anything is the character of Christ and the heart of Christ in me. And God, if this is your instrument, I receive it and excited what you're going to do. So Ron, where's Ron? Ron was asking if the church could pray. I, folks, I really, the reason I've kept quiet, the staff and people close to me have known this, I hate being the center of attention, these kind of things. And I know I've sometimes robbed people of opportunity to pray, so I apologize for that. So when Ron said, come on, Ron, said, let's have the church pray, I said, I, I would love that. I would truly love that. But there's also many other people in this building right now that need to be prayed for and aren't in this building. So I want them prayed for too, not just me. So how do you want to do this? Uh, I want to get you and Teresa up here, and I want uh, uh, elders and anybody that feels they want to come up here, come up here. Everyone else, that you want to pray from your, your seat, that's great. But I want to welcome anyone up here that wants to come up here. Uh, we want to pray for them both. Lean into his mic when you pray. What's that? Lean into his mic when you pray. Oh. Please stay there. Here. Is this working? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Heavenly Father, we come to you today just as our Savior as the creator of the world and thank you that we know that you're listening and that you rejoice in the prayers of your saints. God, we lift up Tony and Teresa today specifically as, as your warriors, as a shepherd of your church. God, that you would do your miraculous thing. God, we pray for your healing. There's nothing beyond you. And we want you glorified in however you handle this, God. You know our will. We want our will to be your will. And we want our plans to be your plans. And we praise you for that. And I pray, God, that you would make your presence known to both Tony and Teresa. That they would have such a peace and a joy in the midst of this that it wouldn't make sense. We thank you so much, Lord. We thank you that you allow us to come to you anytime, any place, and you are there. We praise you for that and the power of the prayers of the saints as you see as incense before your nostrils. Thank you so much, God, for loving us. And we lift them up and so many other hurting people, God, physically, emotionally, spiritually. You are our only hope. And we praise you for that, God. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, there's a word in Isaiah 38, 21. And uh, as I was praying about this yesterday, this word came to me, and it says, you will recover. And then Ecclesiastes 1, 9, that which has been will be again. And the Lord will be triumphant in this illness. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for this man. Thank you for the joy of knowing Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you all very much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, let's sing the last song. Stand up. If you guys want to stay up here in front, let's do that. Remember how we used to do that? Let's praise the Lord.